Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm, I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. The first thing to tell you about this week, if you've not seen the news, we've just announced our brand new podcast documentary series. It's called An Uncanny Hour. It's hosted by Robin and it is a look at the weird and the wonderful and counterculture and all the the kind of stuff that gets a bit too left in the margins. So we're looking at, in the first episode, we're talking about the horror classic Dead of Night. We're going to look at Deathline. We're going to look at the band Hawkwind in the 70s. Books about UFO artefacts. The surrealist artist Dorothea Tanning. Uh, the documentary Grey Gardens. All of that and more on an uncanny hour. The first episode is out on Halloween. As I said, it is about the film Dead of Night. And we chat to... Reese Shearsmith and Jeremy Dyson from the League of Gentlemen, uh, Jeremy's co-writer of Ghost Stories, Andy Nyman, comedy writer Sarah Morgan, and also the comedian and host of the Cosmic Shambles podcast, Wife on Earth, Joanna Neary, and just some of the other guests we've got coming up in future episodes include uh, Alan Moore and Stuart Lee and Carrie Thompson and Caroline Larrington and Stephen Morris, out this Saturday, we think you'll really like this new series. There's going to be six episodes in the first season and it is our first series that we've made that is exclusive to Patreon supporters. So if you are a supporter of either Book Shambles or the Cosmic Shambles Network on Patreon, you'll get this new series. No extra charge. It is part of that. One of the perks, one of the rewards. If you're not a subscriber already, you can go and do that from patreon.com slash bookshambles or patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Sign up there and you'll get not only this brand new series, but all the other stuff that we do for Patreon as well. And obviously this year with zero live shows for any of us, uh, Patreon is more important than ever. It helps us or rather enables us to keep doing uh, all the stuff we do for free. As Robbins said a couple of times, uh, only about 1% of people who listen to all of the shows or watch our live streams uh, do or are able to uh, subscribe and contribute to the Patreon. So if we could get that up to even just 5%, we basically wouldn't have to ask you uh, every week for like two or three years. So if you do have a few spare quid a month and you like what we do and you'd like to get the new series and Uncanny Hour as well, go to Patreon or just go to CosmicShambles.com and follow the links on there. And while you're on the site, check out uh, the new blogs that are up, new live streams, new information about the 24-hour nine lessons show, all sorts of bits and bobs. Uh, the latest science book shambles is up there as well. We spoke to Dr. Camilla Pang this week about her new book, which has just been nominated for the 2020 Royal Society Science Book Prize, Explaining Humans. Make sure you have a listen to that episode. That's a really great conversation. But for now, let's get on to this week's episode. Our guest is the writer Kit Duval, someone who lots of guests that we've had on the show over the years have 
talked about how much they love Kit's writing, so we thought it was high time we had Kit on the show herself. Her new collection of short stories, Supporting Cast, is out now. So here is Robin, and about five minutes into the episode, Josie, because she was running late, and Kit. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, and uh, I'll just, as normal, we don't, we're, not, we're not promoted by anyone, we don't have any advertising, so all I'll say is, if you can, uh, support us via Patreon, it makes a huge difference, none of us are on tour anymore, all the things that we used to do to make a living have gone, about 1% of people who listen to our shows uh, support us via Patreon, if we can get that up to 5%, you won't believe the things that Josie and I will do with all of your magnificent money, well, we'll probably use it for for books and jumpers i would imagine um we're joined today by uh, kit deval who has uh well her, 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 her latest book um which is supporting cast uh which is that is your latest one isn't it 18 that is, that is you've done, you are yes. prolific since you was 2015 yeah. it's and that's what I've, I've, the, i suppose the first thing is when you suddenly are just like right now finally people want my stuff and it turns out of how much of it is right. I can go into this drawer here because this was bloody good stuff and it was turned down and now I can get it made. Now it can be um, out there. Absolutely none. I have to say. So when I started writing uh, in, in sort of, I don't know, I was about 45 and it was rubbish. I, I thought when I first started writing, I just thought, well, I read a lot and I'm really, I was really good at English. I know I'll write a book and I'll be great. And I could not believe how shit I was. And I hope you can swear on this podcast because I was absolutely appalling. And I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe how bad I was. I couldn't believe the massive gap that there was between what was in my head and what I could get down on the paper. So there is nothing, there's no great wealth of stuff waiting to be published. I'm very glad I didn't get published until I was 55, 56, actually, when my book came out. Because my stuff before that wasn't very good. I did write two novels that I couldn't get published. Um, and they would need massive editing. They are good. They're good. They're, they're definitely not publication ready. So everything that I have written, I have written since 2016, actually. So four years. So that is that bit where between the head and the page is because I was just thinking about that this morning. I, yeah. I was in the shower and I suddenly thought of, oh, I've, I finally thought of how I should start the book that I've been working on. I've done the end. I just haven't done the start yet. And, and it was all there in my head. And then I started typing and the first two sentences were fine. And then I could just see whatever I had imagined. So how have you found is, is there any form of system or any form of, of influence where you've gone right now I can see how to get through all of those clunky bits that are in the head. Yeah, no. I mean, no, I have no wisdom to impart to anybody trying to write other than keep at it. Um, what I do do is stop being afraid of putting the rubbish down. Because what I found I was doing is not wanting to commit to paper the the shit I was scared to write badly because I thought well maybe that's who I am I'm a bad writer so I didn't want to put it down so it would stop me sitting down and and trying and actually the process of sitting down and writing the rubbish out is a really good and useful thing to do it's it's about trying and failing trying and failing and every time you try and fail you'll get better 
And if you don't get better, at least you will know that that's what you've got to say. I think perhaps that, you know, and certainly in, in the culture of, of massive success, and we live in a, a culture of success rather than a culture of trying, I think, that people really go on and on and on and on about success. And they go on and on about other people's definition of success. And I think it stops us being the triers and the people that have just got maybe something small to say. And we haven't got the flowery prose and we haven't got the beautifully turned sentence, but we have got something to say and something to say simply. And I think we should be embracing of our style and um, the simplicity of what we have to say. That's an interesting I don't know how much of a problem it is now. I mean, I, I, I sometimes sense it in comedy, having done comedy for, for so long, my whole adult life, which is one of the big changes is there's an incredible number of people who are very slick. They're brilliant. They've got all of the skills. But very often you think, oh, there's not very much being said. And then I remember when I was a teenager and I started going to comedy clubs and, they, you know, these great little grubby rooms, all manner of, 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 of people. To, and, and if you looked at them, you'd go, well, they haven't got any of the skills. But they all had something to say, and getting that balance, I think, is a, is and, and it does seem very, a lot of the, and it might just be middle age that causes me to do this. But there's a lot of things I see, and I go, this is really well made, yes. and none of it has reached me. Yes, yes, because sometimes I think slickness uh, covers over heart. You know, you can have something that's a bit for me anyway. I, I don't like things that are too perfect and too slick and too done and. Something it's like the difference between, uh, you know, an actor that you can say he's a fantastic actor, but he's always an actor, he's always himself. If I think about Laurence Olivier, who made, many people said was the greatest actor, and I'm sure he was, in quite a few of his films, he is Laurence Olivier playing a fantastic part. Oh my goodness, look at Laurence Olivier doing that and saying that. And then there are other actors, usually character actors, who become this person and you forget that you're looking at Laurence Olivier. Um, let me try and think. Trevor Howard was a good example. Really B, you know, I mean, not a B character. He's definitely an A-list actor. But he was whoever he was trying to be at the time. And another actor that's like that is um, Michael Fassbender, who is the character first and Michael Fassbender second, that I could go on, I'm very, very into film, as you, as you might guess. And so I think sometimes you can have a book that is so, oh, that's it, yeah, you're so aware of the beautiful sentence and you're so aware of the beautiful writing that you're not in the palace or you're not in the um, star, you know, the spaceship or you're not in the dungeon. You're actually looking at the beautiful sentence and there's a place for the beautiful sentence but I would rather be in the simple sentence, but oh my God, I'm under the sea or I'm in the cupboard or I'm being chased through the forest and forget the writing. The, should, the writing should be invisible between you and the scene, not, oh, but look how they've said that beautiful thing. Oh, the light on this, you know, whatever. Uh, I think obviously the best writers in the world do both so that you're in the scene and you, you can't actually see the words on the page. Um, and then when you go back, and a great example of that is Graham Greene, 
then when you go back and look at the great sentence, you think, oh, it's so good, it's so good, it's so good. But at the time of reading, the words disappear. And I think that's what a lot of writers aim for, the simplicity of the words and the disappear <coughs> disappearance of the words. Nevertheless, they're beautiful. Nevertheless, it's a beautiful sentence. See, that's a great double whammy that we've had Trevor Howard and Graham Greene because you got both the like, third man, heart of the matter. Absolutely. And I was going to say, when you were talking about that bit where you're not just watching an actor be an actor, have you seen The Fallen Idol uh, based on Graham Greene's short story, Basement Room, with Ralph Richardson as a butler in, a, in an embassy? Oh, my God. No, I haven't. Right. It's one well, of the best films ever. Few, and very few Trevor Howard films I have not seen. So well, I'm gonna th this one's I, 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 I'm I'm not entirely sure whether Trevor Howard's in this, but Ralph Richardson is in it. It's a Graham okay. Greene short story. Uh, Bernard Lee pops up in it. He often pop, pops up in those things. Yeah. Um, and it is one of them. It, it's about uh, a little boy who idealizes the butler because his father's never kind of really there. And uh, I'm not even going to tell you anymore, but it's got some some scenes of utter. There is a scene in a cake shop where Ralph Richardson is trying to hide his tears of a broken heart, which is the most beautiful scene in a cake shop you will ever see. Ooh. And if you don't agree with me, I'll tell you what, we won't even put this out. We'll just accept that we haven't got on uh, when you get round to seeing it. I, I know I love it. I love Ralph Richardson. I think the best, I know we're not supposed to talk about film, but I think... Well, we can talk about anything we want. Okay, so the best role I think I ever saw him in was Washington Square he was Olivia de Havilland's father. Uh, do you know Washington Square? It was, it was based I've on a seen book. It. Oh, sorry, sorry. The film's called The Heiress. The book was called yes. Washington Square by Henry James, and it was remade. It was made into a film with Olivia de Havilland, Ralph, Ralph Richardson, and Montgomery Cliff, based on the book. So good. Oh my God. And I think he was not that much older in real life than Olivia de Havilland. But he was playing her father and he was so awful. He was so awful. So, such a great film. Really, really recommend it. And of course, the book is superb in that Henry James style way. Oh, we should say, by the way, we have Josie now with us. Morning, Josie. Good morning. I'm sorry. Okay. We're moving house and the movers had to come and look around the flat and it took much longer than I thought it would. Well, what's your favourite Ralph Richardson performance then? Uh, I am emba I'm embarrassed because I have no recall, but I feel as if, hang on, wait there. I'm going to have to Google, look at his face, <laughs> and then I will. I, I, I can I show that. another one at, at, at UK? I don't know. Are you a fan of Robert Hello. Donat at all? Um, oh, yes. Yeah, he is. Yes. No, he's, no, he's another person. I'll tell you who else you forget is acting. Frederick March. So Frederick March is Fred always, uh, sorry, always the character. He, he forgets that he's, you don't think you're watching Frederick March. You're right, you know, or Robert Donut, actually. You, um, in fact, was Robert Donut the, am I thinking of the right actor? I think I am. Who was the lawyer in the something affair where he. The, is it, is it the, the, the Winslow boy? That's it. Uh, yeah. Winslow boy. Oh my God. And, and you know, all, I mean, most of these, 99% of these films that we're talking about were books. Yeah. You know, they were book adaptations. I'll tell you another really great film and book, Random Harvest. I don't know what the book was called, 
But it was called Random Harvest. Yes, really. I mean, the most tear-jerking, fantastic um, performances from Ronald Coleman and Margaret. Greer Garson. Greer Garson. I know this because it's my wife's favourite film. Oh, she is very good and, taste. The two James Hilton, and it's interesting because Greer Garson as well was in, we mentioned Robert Donat, Goodbye Mr. Chips, which yes. is also... Ah. Uh, by so, the way, I'll just quickly say to anyone listening, uh, Kit has a book out. It's called Supporting Cast. She's written <laughs> other books. If you'd like to know about her technique and uh, a lot of the writing things that she's done, there's loads of interviews on the internet, and we'll, we'll put down links to that. We're mainly going to be talking about old movies today, I think. I would like to make the point that that is good, and I am glad of it, and I love this about our show, because I want to hear the things that you love, and I want to go down little alleyways and uh, like find new things and talk with enthusiasm about them. So I'm thrilled. Also, so for people who don't know Random Harvest, I'm going to read the very short synopsis that's on IMDb. An amnesiac World War One veteran falls in love with a musical star only to suffer an accident which restores his original memories, but erases his post-war life. What a premise! Oh, it's so good. Oh, it, it, it... it really is one of the most moving and well-acted films that pulls away. And this does go to writing, actually. It comes right up to the melodrama and pulls back. It comes right up to it where you think, oh, it's going to be that. No, it isn't. Pull back. And that's the best kind of writing where you are on the edge of your seat and it holds off and it holds off and it holds off and it stretched you to almost breaking point and then it delivers the coup. It delivers that final thing where you go, oh, my goodness. But you've got to wait for it. And that's really good writing that make, puts you in a scene where you think, no, and then it's off. And you go, no. And so it's continually squeezing your heart until you think it might burst. It's superb. Great film. Great, great film. Beautiful about that Greer Garson, who is, you know, the character she plays is so selfless. Oh. She's a, it, it's we were talking about this. I can't remember who I was talking with the other day saying this, the, the change that happens in the 1950s, in the 30s and the 40s. When you look at some of those amazing like Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis yes. and Joan Crawford and, and, and Greer Garson and Jean Tierney. Yes. And then in the 1950s, it's much harder to you, uh, women go back to being yeah. housewives. And I don't know if that, that's just the, the impression, but it does seem you return to. We were talking about this with Laura Bates, who's written the book on misogyny, about how it's sort of like a cultural reinforcement of what they were trying to force women to do. Yes. <laughs> you, know? you have these, you know, certainly in the 40s, 30s and 40s, amazingly strong women, definitely, you know, masters of their own destiny, and, and very often pushing back against society. Mm. Uh, you know, Mildred Pierce, you know, I'm going to be a successful woman. And, you know, I've come from nothing. And, you know, Betty Davis, I've been in every role. Uh, the one I'm thinking of particularly is the one where she wears the red dress. Do you remember? The one um, where she's married to Claude Rains. Hang on. I'm, I'm frantically Googling all these. Sorry. So Claude Rains, oh, you'd know it. It's a really famous film. Uh, she's married to Claude Rains. And she, <clears throat> she cannot be tamed. She cannot be tamed. And Claude Rains is blind and go, leaves her. She loses all of her beauty. Deception. No. 
loses all of her beauty, loses all of her suitors. Now Voyager. No, now Voyager is superb though. Now Voyager is one where she is, she uh, becomes beautiful. She she's um, she's on a, a voyage, and she meets the man of her dreams, and she's very plain, and she becomes very beautiful. Oh, that's such a good film. Uh, no, so I'm trying to think of the one where she, Mr. Skeffington. No, Mr. Skeffington's great. That's where an author comes to stay in her at a family house and brings her along as his secretary. That's a really good film about writers. Um, I'm sorry because I feel a bit silly that I'm like, is it this? But I will keep going. <laughs> um, hang on. So they made four films together. So we, we've eliminated the other three. What I've put in for my search is Claude Rains is blind. My so let's find out what happens with that one. Yes. Uh, oh, it turns out, it's, yeah, it keeps coming up with Mr. Skeffington. Um, Oh, I don't oh. think it's Miss. Maybe it's Mr. Skeffington. I, I feel like we've uh, like recommended three very good <laughs> films starring the two of them. Which is the, here rocking. we go. This is uh, a, a beautiful but self-centered woman whose many suitors and self-love distract okay, from her returning it. affections of her husband. Yes, yes, yes. Her husband, yes. Job Skeffington. That's it. That's Job. Oh, it's such a good film. Some great frocks in it as well. I mean, you can't go wrong with a great frock. May I take us two steps back and say, yeah. I was looking at Ralph Richardson's uh, IMDb page and I completely forgot that he was in Time Bandits. He's the greatest God. God there's ever been. If there were more gods like Ralph God. Richardson, I would never have, have, have you know, I'd be a victim. would even now. flirt with atheism. He, yeah. is, he was, and he got... As he got older, he got that tremulous voice like Catherine Hepburn. Mm. And so he, he, he felt more serious than he actually was. Like he felt more dodgery than he actually was um, because that sort of tremulous <laughs> voice made him seem like he was about 205. But isn't that such an interesting thing? That is a physical thing one can't control and yeah. yet affects your entire perception as a performer. Yes. Yes. And, and I think about that with stand-ups quite often. Like the the uh, I remember talking to Stuart Lee about how when he was a young man, he had the same sort of style and persona, but it didn't work until he was in sort of more middle-aged because it, he he fit properly the yes. the reaction to the world. Yes. And, and sort of I think it's just so funny that like in some ways it's so harsh. Like. I, I mean, for myself, like, I love to be on stage playing something of a naive. And I really think when I'm 75, it's not going to wash. Yeah. <laughs> so, like... I, think, I do think um, I had, I've got a daughter who had a really shit time at school, really, really bad time for all sorts of reasons. And she hated school from the minute she went uh, mm. until she was 16. And then obviously, you know, said she could leave. And I remember sitting down with her one day and I said, look, there are some successful adults and there are some successful children. And you're in a class of successful children. By successful, I mean popular, wearing the right clothes, looking right, being interested in the right things, you know, be just being the, the you know, alpha children. Mm-hmm. And I said, and then there are some people who are successful adults and they grow into themselves and they become themselves and they become they find their place in the world. They find their friendships and they find their way and they find their tribe. And I said, listen, you're a child till you're 16, but you're an adult till you're about 90. 
So mm. 16 to 90 is what counts. 1 to 16, it's a bit shit and you're going to get, you know, you're going to be unhappy, but it'll be over soon. And she told, she's 25 now, and she told me the other day, she said, she used to say that to herself, I'm going to be a successful mm -hmm. adult, I'm going to be a successful adult, because she really hated being at school. And I was, I was not a popular child, but I sort of was invisible at school. Um, and I know what it was like, because I saw it, to be unpopular and visible. It's different being unpopular and invisible, because you can just, you know, no one pays you any attention, you're just ignored, which can be painful, but it's not nearly as bad as being visibly unpopular. Um, and I think that's what it is for, for some of us. We have to grow into who we are. You know, we have to grow into a personality or, or we're born with a personality that comes to fruition, if you like, at 40 or 60 sometimes, or 25 um and then other people seem to have an easier time of it you know they seem to popular at five popular at 10 popular at 15 or know who they are even i mean i didn't know who i was till i was about 50 i still am massively massively immature i'm proud of it i've got to say i never want to grow up ever 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 i did think i'd know the answers to life and i realized how little i fucking know it's unbelievable um and now i sort of have to roll with that that there aren't any answers actually so stop looking for them one thing i used to do for both my children is that they had in fact i used to type it on a piece of paper and give it to them it was a pass and it was on any day once a term they had a free pass and they could wake up that morning and say i'm not going to school don't pretend to be ill don't say it's about your homework. Just say I can't fucking stand it anymore. And they'd give me the pass. And it was only one. And once they've used it, they've got to go every other day. Uh, and that was the day that they could say, I can't go in today. And I, I was not allowed to ask a question. I was not allowed to cajole. Didn't matter what I was doing. It was a free pass. It was not even a duvet day. It was just a free pass. You could do what you like. Um, and... The, the, I remember them both getting it going, oh, my God, when shall I use it? When shall I lose it? And what happened is they hardly ever used it because they knew they had it and they were scared of using it because I did enforce it. If you've used it, you've used it, dude. You've got to go every other day. Um, but when but they didn't use it because I won't use it today. I think I can get through today. I think I can do today. Uh, and then, you know, occasionally, especially uh, my daughter, she'd just go, I'm not going today and I go fine. And sometimes it's massively inconvenient, I have to say, but you've got to be true to your word. And if she said it, it's because she can't stand it. So, you know, she just sits at home and have chocolate biscuits and telly. That's so much better boundaries than my mum, who I love so much, who basically would be like, oh, you can go in late every day, who cares? Let me have a catch up, which, I, you know, it, it was great. But I think it, I don't think it instilled in me the right kind of habitual yeah. <laughs> practice. Yeah. So it's your mum's fault that I'm always doing podcasts <laughs> with you. You'll see, as you saw this morning, Kit, always. Today she's 10 minutes late before. with another removal man house. alibi. I had somebody in my house. <laughs> um, no, I, I I think I also love the fact that we got to talk about something so profound and like, 
hard. I, I think, so I'm a newer parent. My daughter's only two years old and it keeps dawning on me all of these things that she's going to go through and yeah, yeah. how little prepared I am to bear that emotionally. <laughs> like, yeah. It must be very hard to sort of see them and, and then have to step back and think, okay, how can I help them weather this without getting too like, oh no, <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't want to be. You're walking that fine line between uh, protecting your children and uh, letting them out into the world and you'll find out, maybe I'm sure your daughter's walking, but the first time your child walks, you know, you're like two millimetres behind them to catch them when they fall. And at some point you do have to let them fall on their own. You don't catch them when they fall. Let them fall because then they will learn how to get up and, and carry on walking. And we all know that that's a really healthy thing to do, to fail. But actually watching your child uh, be unhappy and depressed is a whole new level of allowing it to happen. You know, you do have to step in, my view is. Of course, you know, one of the great things about school is that you learn to make friends and break friends. And I think it's the one of the biggest skills, never mind education. I think schools are substandard educating our children. But socialisation is, is, I think, what school and any group situation or team sport is for. But it's absolutely another level of pain to watch anybody, anybody in mental distress and of course, if you're an adult, you can leave that job, you can leave that partner, you can tell your boss where to go, you can move house, you know, you've got all this agency. As a child, you're shunted to different places, you're told to go to school, wear that uniform, do that subject that you're absolutely rubbish at. Um, and it's so painful to watch your child be unhappy. And I think all you can do is make sure that they might be unhappy at school, very little you can do about it. You can intervene all you like, as I did, and it didn't work. Um, but you can make sure they're happy at home, and that home becomes a, a great haven where their peculiarities, if they have them, are celebrated, where I, I would, I'm quite irreverent, and I would laugh at the teachers. I would take the teachers off. I would say, it's all bollocks, but do it anyway. You know, so that you come into that child and meet them where they are not where you'd like them to be, certainly not where the school would like them to be, certainly not where society would like them to be. Uh, and I always used to try and just make, you know, as soon as my kids got into the car, it was a different world. And so you can hang on till 20 past three, hang on till 20 past three, not make 20 past three another form of torture. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, that was just the, the way I did it because I had two children with special needs and, you know, you, you fight for them like a Rottweiler. Do you find it? It's, I, I, I want to talk just a little bit about, about, about the books, not too much. But happy, one of them happy. was. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry that I derail. I'm just no, like. No, no, no. I, I, I don't want to. Ask, I didn't want to get because I know that. Uh, but what I find just thinking of what we're talking about there, empathy. And, yeah. it's, you know, I've seen you in the past talk about the fact the importance of doing justice to someone's story. And I was thinking, you know, unbounded common people, you know, with you, that anthology and people like Lisa Blower, who you've had on before, is fantastic. And and uh, and they also did an, another book called Others as well, which, again, you know, was about 
how stories can take you into the minds of other people and give you another and and i was just thinking that for 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 teenagers you know that bit again of as you're developing as you're finding yourself and you're sometimes molding yourself in the in the situation around you rather than from actually from from inside stories seem to be such an important part and i thought you know both common people and others that they have such a, a, a an an important role to, to play to give you other options that may not be right in front of you Totally. Uh, that's that's the value of being a reader. If you're a reader, uh, my son had dyslexia, so he wouldn't read, but we did audio books and they do put you in someone else's skin. But I think more importantly for children, particularly, is not to be in someone else's skin, but to be in your own skin in someone else's body. So what you want to see is whatever you're struggling with reflect. You want, you want to be following someone who has your issue. Let's say that you're gender identity is not what you want it to be or you're struggling with it or you think you might want to be a boy and you're a girl and whatever what you actually want to do is to follow someone be in someone's body that's having that same issue how are they dealing with it what do they feel so when they say oh my goodness i hate this you can go yeah and me it's the and me i think you want when you're a teenager so that you're not on your own you're not the freak you're not the odd one you're not the fat one you're not the ugly one you're not the ginger one you're not the black one you have found someone who thinks like you feels like you and they're having a different journey they might live in a different country they might have different issues but you see yourself on the page you see someone else having these struggles and they might do it a different way but at least you found someone who's having an experience like yours or lives in a tower block like you or lives on a on a farm like you do or your parents have, their parents have got no money your parents have got no money and they talk about that i think it's so important for children to see to both have both to have a little bit of fantasy you know a little bit of i don't know anything about this experience and i'm gonna you know lord of the rings i'm off i'm gonna have this fantastic journey and then this is me this is my journey um, done by someone else and whoever wrote this knows what it's like to feel lonely scared isolated or whatever I think that's really important for kids when when you um I was really reminded of a book that I read as a young adult um by what you said and I just found it and it's a book by Jean Year called A Place to Scream um and it's funny I've not thought about it for 25 years and um uh it's about um but i but now i didn't realize what it was about and i thought it might be fun to share with the, you the synopsis because it's actually quite shocking it was written in 1992 it's the year 2010 the welfare state abolished 16 year old jillian faces a terrible dilemma should she listen to her friend and leave her boring clerical job and travel with him or should she stay and help her beloved gramps whom her parents have abandoned to a government dump for old people I mean, it's, oh, it's well a bit too on the nose. But exactly as you said, of you, the wanting to hear, you want to go and me, and it's about yes. sort of people fighting to be kind of creative and free against a kind of uncaring bureaucratic world. And I really, really remember reading that book and it being the first book that had made me laugh out loud because there was like a naughty bit where they rearrange the name plates and make like naughty names that like like swear words and um 
yeah I'm sorry because uh, you just sparked this memory in me and I wanted to um share okay. it and then I thought oh I can buy it uh, it's uh, 75 pounds on Amazon so uh, oh, I might just keep it the memory it's probably not well I think I think the and me is actually what we all strive for I think maybe we underestimate the need for children to do it because we we can find our and me moments if, you, if you're an adult you can say what well, we've all done it where we're in a situation or in an environment where we don't feel and me there's no and me in this job or whatever and you you know you can do something about it i think children can't in so much of their life that in reading they can perhaps find the and me but you know for for me that's what i look for all all the time all through my life someone that you know you can have that connection with where you sit down and go oh, I'm sick of this yeah and me you know, that's that's what you want. You, you just want that moment of um, connection with someone. I wrote Becoming Diner uh, a year ago. And I didn't know much about YA. I was not a reader at all when I was growing up. At all, at all, at all. I couldn't stand books. They were for swats. And people <laughs> like my sister who were good and didn't swear and didn't smoke and didn't fancy boys. And I, I just want to say... I think you must have been the coolest teenager. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. I wish I'd known you. You'd have been so cool. So not cool. I was always (laughs) behind cool, way behind cool. Um, But, yeah, I I, I didn't start reading until I was 23. So I don't – I didn't have – I don't have a feel for YA because I just missed that whole part. Obviously, you know, everyone has to read at school. uh, But, you know – like everybody else, I'm reading Dickens and uh, The Mill on the Bloody Floss. Oh, uh, I hate The Mill on the Floss. It's been the mill mill on the Floss. Oh. You like Mill on the Floss? Yeah. I don't Listen, like Mill on the Floss. I hated Jane Austen and anything else I liked because it wasn't Jane Austen. And yeah. I liked George Eliot. I thought it was good. <laughs> I liked all these things much later on. I was not as clever as you Can and I it remains you? so. Well, I wasn't clever. Can I ask you, at 23, discovering reading, that must have been an incredible time. Oh, it was fantastic. I read a book, at least, I would say, four books a week. Wow. Uh, I <gasps> stopped taking drugs. I'd stopped drinking. I had a lot of time. I had no kids, lived on my own. And I just devoured the classics. I just started mm. with... Um, 10 books recommended to me by my boss and they were all penguin classics i'd never i'd never even heard of penguin classics didn't know what they were taught you know i had no idea just knew that they had the black spine so i went to dylan's as it was then the bookshop and i bought the 10 and then i bought another 10 and then i bought another 10 and i think i stopped maybe after a hundred of the classics uh, and i thought okay I've read some really good books here. Which ones did I really like? Not that I went through this thought process, but I remember thinking Arnold Bennett. I really liked Arnold Bennett. I really liked Graham Greene. I really like uh, Flaubert, Emile Zola. And I, I didn't even know I was choosing a genre because if someone said to me, even now if someone said to me, oh, that's a modernist. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what... Uh, uh, some of these literary phrases I don't know what they mean I just know they talked about people a lot or that was about someone in a house and it was a domestic setting and so I found as well that when I was liking people's writing that they knew each other 
Gustave Flaubert and Arnold Bennett knew each other and Emil Zola and Somerset Maugham. And then when I discovered Graham Greene, um, oh, I mean, that was just devour, devour, devour. So I had a very, very rich time self-educating. I mean, I wouldn't have called it that, but it probably lasted 20 years uh, of just going, okay, I've got it. This is what a book is. This is, I understand it. I get it. Um, I, I missed out on reading women. I really didn't read enough women because I was reading the classics yeah. and, and women are so poorly represented in the canon. Um, and so there, there's huge gaps, although I'm very widely read on, on the classics, there are huge gaps in contemporary women's literature, like, for example, um, what's her name? Iris Murdoch, mm -hmm. haven't read. Um, the, Shirley Jackson, you know. There's, there's oh, Shirley Jackson's great. So mm -hmm. Elizabeth Taylor, uh, there's loads and loads of particularly post-war women writers that... But I'm talking post First World War as well. There's just huge, huge gaps in my writing because if I have read a woman, it is Jane Austen, it is George Eliot, and then there's this big uh, absence in, in my writing. I, I read women, Irish women, so uh, Molly Keane, who is fantastic, and uh, Edna O'Brien. Obviously, I've read and and probably a bit better on Irish women. It still stuns me to think that there were all of these heavyweight writers in the 20th century. Yes. By dint of the fact that they were women, were just kind of like pushed out in terms yes. of legacy and appreciation. Like, yes. I, it blows my mind. And similarly, like, you know, I, I did a literature degree and I look at my um, books from that time and from my early 20s and it is all men. It's yes. all men. Yeah. Like, you know, and it blows my mind that, like, I just was sucked along with that. Yes, and, and yeah. you don't question it. Yeah, to question it. Yeah, I mean, everything I read at school, you know, in rote around the classroom, that, that was men, you know, you were reading men, you were reading men's view of the world. And I have to say, some of it beautiful. And oh, some yeah. of it, right, you know, Arnold Bennett could write women so, so well. Yeah. Uh, and, and also the minutiae and, and the oppression of, of a woman's life. He wrote really, really well, but he's still a man, mm. you know, and no doubt there was a woman at the same time writing the same thing, <laughs> writing it better. And she never got published because not that I mean, I've got a lot of time for Arnold Bennett, um, but you know there was always space there was always space always for her as well space. you know <laughs> always space and space at the top yeah that's yeah. That, like that old stephen jay gould line uh i think when he was asked about celebrating einstein and he says sometimes when we celebrate einstein i think how many einsteins were toiling in the fields totally and i think yeah, that that's oh, uh i i often have this conversation with people when they talk about you know the best tennis player and the best this and the best that. And I go, no, it's, it's not the best tennis player. It's the best tennis player with supportive parents that lived near a, a, a you know, tennis court that had a tennis racket, that had time to play tennis, that found a coach, that got noticed. That's not the, it's the best tennis player with those advantages. That's not the best tennis player. The best tennis player is probably on the streets of Uganda somewhere. Uh, ditto football. Ditto painting, ditto writer. These are the people, which is why we have to expand 
the opportunities for people and widen our net, widen our scope and support people who have potential. They may, may not have talent now on the page. Um, one of the really good things about uh, the Prima Donna Festival, which I helped to, to found last year, Literature Festival, is that we had a, we um, held a, a competition. And for that competition, your spelling doesn't count and your paragraphs don't count and your English doesn't count. So we're not looking for perfection and who's done the most creative writing courses and degrees and got someone he lives in a supportive environment, got someone to help them with this, got someone to help them with that. But it's about potential. You can really work with potential. Um, and it levels the playing field for those people who struggle with English and can't write very well, maybe haven't got um, access to a laptop, you know, with spell checker on and all that kind of stuff. Because there's such a lot of untapped talent. There's so many people that don't get the breaks. Mm -hmm. um, and very similar to the Einsteins toiling in the field, you know, we'll never know because we have to live in an environment where everyone had the same chance and more than the same chance were given the opportunity to get to the same level. So, I mean, the same chance is not always the same thing. You could say anyone can go and play on those public tennis courts. That's not the same chance because not everyone can have a racket all the time so they're allowed or know that they're there know that the tennis courts are there or live near the tennis courts or get a lift to the tennis courts. so saying here's equal opportunity doesn't always work it's not always enough to say equal opportunity it has to be supported to have equal opportunity and I think that's the thing that kills me when I think about the modern world and particularly in our country, it's the waste. It's the absolute organised waste of potential that diminishes us all. Like, you know, in a scientific sense, holding back bright minds from low income backgrounds and disadvantaged backgrounds diminishes us all because those are the people who could be yeah. saving lives. Uh, in, a, in a literary sense, it diminishes us all because those are the people who could be able to create the most wonderful, beautiful, insightful, important and useful things. And like the idea that only a tiny, you know, really sort of 10% of the population is being allowed access to kind of the arts, to education, to the best of things. The idea that the best of us would come from just that is so ridiculous. So, uh, uh, supporting cast said it out now, uh, and uh, I was going to quickly mention as well. You talk about uh, books about kind of gender identity, YA. We we interviewed a while ago. Do you remember Lisa Williamson, who yes. wrote the book Art, Art of Being Normal, uh, yeah. is a is a is a YA book about kind of gender identity. So I just thought right. I'd throw that throw that that in. Thank you very much. There's there's so many more things to talk about. I want to talk about that film with about Gloria Graham with Annette Benning, the film stars Don't Die in Liverpool. But uh, yes, what a good film. What a good film. And I didn't really rate her as an actress, the original Gloria Graham. I just thought she was just not it. But I love I went back and watched some films of hers after seeing the film. And I thought, yeah, underestimated her. The Big Heat. She's great in The Big Heat. And Oklahoma. Yeah, I don't reckon. like see, I don't like musicals at uh, all. At what all. about West Side Story? That's the only music. No, sorry. Carmen Jones and West Side Story. They are the musicals, and all the others, not my cup of tea. Don't Hedwig like and the Angry Inch. I think Hedwig and the Angry Inch is great. 
<laughs> this is right. So we'll do the the movie review show, uh, movie shambles, regular with Kit. That's going to be uh, every Thursday from now on. Mm-hmm. And uh, the um, oh, there's so much we could talk more there. Thanks very much for 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 joining us. And uh, thanks so um, much for your time. Um, thanks for talking about such a wide range of things. It's so interesting. Thank you. It's great, great. Thank you for asking me. And there are tell everyone listen. There, there are loads of uh, of really great interviews with you uh, uh, out there as well about a lot of other things as well. So go go and have a look before uh, or after you've bought a book. Actually, buy the book first and then, then read all the interviews. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much, everyone who supports us via uh, Patreon. As I said, we only get about one percent of, of of people who listen supporting us via Patreon. If you can, uh, Robin, that makes things. My friend called it Patreon. Oh. <laughs> Patreon. I think I've been getting it right, but I might That's be wrong. Okay. It's got to be Patreon, right? Oh, okay. Well, do you know what? If you want to support us via Patreon, you may. <laughs> uh, if you want to support us via Patreon, you may. If you want to support us, any, we don't care how you pronounce it. Yeah. You know, if just if you can support us, that'd be great. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, you can go to Apple Podcasts and like and rate and subscribe and review and give it five stars and all that sort of stuff. That really helps us out. And Uncanny Hour is out on Saturday, Halloween, our new exclusive Patreon podcast documentary series with Robin Hosting and joined by Rhys Shearsmith and Stuart Lee and Jeremy Dyson and Joanna Neary and Sarah Morgan and Carrie Thompson and Stephen Morris and all sorts of other people cosmicshambles.com slash uncanny hour will give you all the info about that patreon.com slash bookshambles is the place to go to support the podcast have a great week stay safe look after yourselves and we will be back with a new episode next week this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robbins book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions 